0: The Last Word with Matt Cooper. Today FM. It all happens here. Today FM. Well, we're joined by a guest who's been with us many times on the programme over the last couple of decades. Former consultant in emergency medicine, Dr Chris Luke. Thank you very much for taking the time to join us. Chris, do you remember last year when there were major chaos at Dublin Airport and there was uproar because people had to queue for hours before they were able to get through for their flights. It came to mind when I'm looking at what's going on in the emergency departments in our hospitals at present because those queues were a fraction of the hours that patients have to wait in our hospitals. Yet that issue was sorted out by hiring extra people, by making sure that the processes were adhered to properly and by the use of technology. If that can be done, okay, maybe it's slightly more simple, but cannot the same be done to sort out the mess in our emergency departments and our hospitals?
1: Well, I would have thought so, Matt. I mean, it does seem to me, I I know that we have been discussing this, uh, you and I and and many, many others discussing this issue every year for for years and years and years. Um, And I'm afraid, you know, the, the solutions remain much the same. They are fundamentally about management and they are fundamentally about resource, and they are fundamentally about trying a new approach. Um, but we're still waiting, really, for that for that new approach. And, you know, I, 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 one of the things which enraged me in the last few days listening to the coverage of the, the emergency department crisis across the country was the story of one patient who, along with dozens of other people on trolleys in a corridor and their companions and their family members and people in the waiting room in mean, one big emergency department all had to use one toilet because one of the other toilets, the, the, the only other toilet was, was, was blocked and, and broken. And I'm afraid that enraged me, Matt, because it sort of symbolised the way that the staff in so many of our emergency departments are expected to be all things to all men. And, you know, rather than letting them getting on get on with what are, are obviously incredibly complex and intense and demanding clinical situations in other words situations that are fraught that can be very complex medically to diagnose and to treat and need, need all your attention but instead staff day in day out month in year in year out are spending so much of their time looking for a chair looking for a cup of tea for, for a patient uh, trying to fix toilets cleaning floors and so on and so forth so one of the obvious fixes for the situation situation I, I, I'm, I'm forever advocating is that while an emergency department in any department in any hospital is described as overwhelmed, I would expect that the chief executive or their deputy visits that department every single day for as long as it takes to see what can be done other than the clinical input, but to see what can be done to support the clinical staff, so that, for example, simple things like tea and coffee and sandwiches and hot food at three in the morning for everybody in the in the department, chairs, trolleys, the pursuit of beds—so much of the non-clinical stuff, Matt, You'd be amazed. It is so inefficient. So much of the non-clinical, the non-bedside stuff, has to be done by doctors and nurses uh, who should really be focusing all their time and attention uh, on just dealing with patients. So well, actually, a just huge just come back to me.
0: That broken toilet example, because I think that's the sort of thing that people can associate with. So whose responsibility responsibility would it be? Is a nurse going to have to phone it in or are multiple nurses going to be phoning it in? Who do they go to? Are they expected to unblock the toilet themselves? Will there be somebody coming from maintenance within the next half hour or will it be the following day?
1: Well, that seems to be precisely the point. I mean, we're forever talking about, you know, can we get senior clinical decision makers in? But that's the least of it. That's just the start of it, Matt. We need people who can fix toilets 24-7. We need x-ray and imaging and scan facilities 24-7. We need catering for staff who are working. 24-7. 24-7. I mean, many, many of our staff who are there overnight, some of them are doing double shifts because there's no one to replace them at the end of an 8, 10, 12-hour shift. So, I mean, they need to be fed and and, and, and they, they have their own physiological needs which are not being met. So the hospital needs to reorient its, itself entirely for the duration of an emergency department crisis so that the chief executive and their entire team are down in the emergency department every single day so that they can see for themselves with their own eyes exactly what the, the, the pressure is that the staff are facing and then bringing their logistical uh, and their their authority to bear on bringing, you know, solutions. There are so many little solutions so, sorry, that Chris, can be offered.
0: Sorry, Chris, I just contradict you maybe there slightly, but surely it shouldn't just be during a crisis. Surely that's what should be happening every day. And that's what I mean by about having process in place so that the crisis does not develop.
1: Well, Matt, I have spent... the the bones of 37 years at the front line of small and large emergency departments and you know people talk about the hospitals not working 24-7 or 7-7 or 7. Uh, and the truth is that, apart from the staff of the emergency department, the critical care unit, the coronal care unit, uh, and perhaps the theatres, you know, much of the hospitals tend to close down around our, our around our, our, our country. And as far as I'm concerned, what we need is, you know, uh, you know, 24-7 coverage by people in authority. And I'm not talking about the director of nursing or the night bed manager. I'm talking about people who can actually open up extra resources, who can... You know open the pharmacy who can uh, uh, you know endorse or authorize you know expensive tests or imaging that, that are occasionally required to be done authorize you know bed procurement in the middle of a really hectic weekend and so on and so on so it's not just the senior you know clinicians that need to be in at night and at weekends it's the it's the support staff that are are, are just as deficient in many of our in many of our hospitals
0: OK, and then that brings on the question of technology. I mean, is there still an awful lot of stuff done on the basis of pen and paper and paper's been moved around the place? Rather than, as I know there was a head of technology a number of years back, Richard Corbidge, who came to the country, worked in the HSE for a few years and then left, I think, almost in despair. How advanced now is the use of technology to move information quickly and get things done And as a result of that?
1: Well, it's hugely improved compared with what it was five years ago. But the thing is, Matt, you've only got to think about the cyber attack, you know, a couple of years ago. And, you know, I I, I was working with the HSE in, in the year or two after that. And I can tell you that the despair and exhaustion and frustration experienced by the staff, the clinical staff, during that time when they had been hacked and the systems were down was extraordinary. Many of them said the stress associated with the cyber crime was worse than it was at, it, at, the, at the peak of the COVID pandemic. So, you know, technology brings its own difficulties. And very often, for example, the technology that people are using in, in, in hospital offices is six, seven, eight years old. I mean, you know, I don't know where to start, but I mean, everybody knows this. Uh, but there are, there are, you know, there's, there's no doubt that the progress has been made, and for, particularly, for example, in imaging and radiology. And there are, I'm sure, many, many hospitals where the radiologists can actually report on, uh, you know, the scans that have been done in their hospital uh, from home, remotely, uh, all hours of the day and night. And that's, you know, that's a huge advantage if, if that's available. And I know that many GPs now can liaise directly with the centre with with the GP mail uh, email system. But that's, that's progress. But you know, there's not nearly enough uh, you know, joined up thinking and linkage in terms of the IT systems.
0: Of course, there are politicians who point out there's 23.5 billion euro per annum spent on the health service. And per head of population, that's the same as France, for example. So is it possible that there is actually quite a lot of waste and inefficiency in there? That for all of the talk about needing to invest more and hire more people, that more could be done with the money we already have. We could eliminate waste.
1: The difficulty with that argument, uh, Matt, which is obviously, which is self-evidently, you know, uh, you know, th- 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 thought-provoking, uh, and it, it makes everybody consider, you know, whether the, the answer to your question is yes. Obviously, the answer al- is always yes that you can always make efficiencies. But the difficulty with that question is that it, it's kind of rhetorical and sort of answers itself. And people, uh, uh, you know, you can always make efficiencies, but the efficiencies have got to be targeted and they've got to be evidence-based. For example, the efficiencies that were notional in the 1980s and 90s led us to the devastating shortages of bed stock that we have at the moment. As far as I'm aware, we have fewer beds now in 2023 than we did in 1993 in this country because of alleged economies of scale, uh, which, which drove the political decisions to close lots of little hospitals, community hospitals, cottage hospitals, and so on. So, you know, the, the efficiencies have got to be targeted and have got to be, I suppose, piloted or tested and, and, and evaluated. But all I can say is, we do not have enough space in our emergency departments, even the modern ones, the new ones, the ones newly built. We do not have enough beds in our hospitals or in our nursing homes or community step down facilities. And we do not have enough uh, nursing and medical staff in the emergency departments, you know, at the pointy end of the he- health system, whatever else about, you know, the, at the back of the hospital, or the rest of the hospital, or the rest of the community. And of course, I, I, I don't even need to tell you that many people can't get hold of a GP now because the, the, the cohort of general practitioners is shrinking. As we speak,
0: Yeah, I mean, and just sort of following on from that, you know, there's been a suggestion that maybe there are many people who are in the emergency departments who do not need to be there. But I suppose the clarity of that is, is that does that not also imply there are lots of people who do need to be in the emergency departments who don't go there because they're worried about the delays and everything that they'll face? So that it's actually not a false number, but it might be just necessarily there are people there who shouldn't be, but people who should be who aren't.
1: Yes. Well, you know, about 40 years ago, your general practitioner could ring his friend or classmate, the surgeon or the physician in the county hospital or hospitals like Lachlansterns or Vincent's where, where I worked, and they could say, look, uh, Matt, I, I've got this case. I think it's a typical appendicitis. Well, can, can you have a little look at it? And the surgeon would say, yes, sure. Send uh, send the teenager to, to St. Mary's ward, and I'll see her after my, my list this afternoon. That was very much the way things were 40 years ago. So there were lots of alternatives to sending people in through the evening. Now, the number of alternatives or options to our emergency departments are so limited. We don't have access to imaging often, access to outplay, timely access to outpatient clinics, uh, access for homelessness, access, for, for example, for teenagers with mental health issues. I mean, you can uh, any day of the week in any department in the city, you'll find teenagers languishing for days at a time waiting for, you know, teenage uh, mental health beds and so on. We have addiction issues. We have homeless issues. All of those issues plus the flare-ups of the chronic disease, plus people who are on waiting lists and have given up, you know, waiting for a consultant appointment or scan, they are all pitching up to our emergency department. So... You know, people wonder why it's called emergency department and not A&D. Well, the reason is because when A&E, you know, A&E to people in the, in the departments, regularly usually it means, you know, in terms of black humor, anything and everything. Whereas it should be for emergency department, for emergencies. And the, the reality is that an emergency should be something that's unexpected. And time critical and urgent. Whereas a lot of the time, much of what we're seeing is actually not unexpected but predictable. It's not that time critical, but there's nowhere else for that person to go.
0: But so you say predictable, and this comes back to process. And I'm just going to pick one example that you use there of teenage boys in emergency departments with mental health issues that need to be sorted. If that is identifiable and that is known, why then isn't there the establishment of a special funnel? that can work on a 24-7 basis to move those people out of the emergency department to get the proper care from the proper clinicians where required?
1: Well... Matt, it's that the answer to that is the same answer as, as why hasn't Slauncher care being implemented? Why hasn't the vision for change written by mental health experts, professionals, professors, academics written years and years ago in terms of adolescent mental health and adult mental health issues? Why haven't all those been you know, implemented? And I, I don't know what the answer is. In, you know, there's no simple answer, but all I can say is there's a systemic... Right, but sorry,
0: then there's a failure. Is it a failure actually of the politicians? Because in fairness to the politicians, they did give the Shlanta Care document for us to work off. So is it a failure then of administration from the Department of Health or within the HSE? Is there inertia? Does, does, do we have to have absolute crises such as the sudden emergence of COVID three years ago to kickstart people into action on things?
1: I'm afraid, I think we do. And, you know, for my 40 years in medicine, the, the you know, change always seems to require some sort of crisis. Now, Matt, before your before your, your your listeners all collectively take to the drink, let me let me point a couple of things out. The, the, there has been immense progress in every corner of healthcare in Ireland. We have wonderful pre-hospital care in Cork, for example. We have people going out from St. Vincent's out to Blackrock, uh, homes in Blackrock where the elderly have fallen, and providing care that avoids hospital admission eight, nine t- times out of ten. We have a, a remarkable care, a care pathways for stroke and sepsis and diabetes and epilepsy and trauma now that didn't exist, uh, you know, t- 10, 15 years ago. We have Trauma centres in evolution. Uh, uh, you know, we've, we've, there's an awful lot of progress, but for some reason, we we require crises, you know, year after year, in order to sort of, you know, gather the to sort of capture the energy of people, you know, making making a fuss every time there is a, a, a crisis. I don't know why it is that way, but that just seems to be the way it is.
0: Well, we'll look to finish, so Chris. Have you any positives you could offer us? Is there even just one silver bullet perhaps that you could suggest that would make something of a difference, a positive difference?
1: Absolutely, Matt. Look, the thing is, all of these problems are fixable. And I take people back to the early noughties. I worked in the NHS for about 14 years and towards the end of my time there... Uh, uh, t- Tony Blair and Gordon Brown introduced a, a new initiative uh, with a four-hour target for every A and E patient back then in the UK, uh, certainly in England and Wales. And basically, it meant that they, you know, every patient had to complete their journey through the entry door to the exit door of an A and E department within four hours. And if they did not, uh, the chief executive or the medical director were sanctioned, they were penalised, and sometimes even sacked. Uh, in addition to that, Blair and Brown, brought, you know, infused a, l- a lot of resources and money into the system to appoint new practic- practitioner nurses and new consultants and it made a huge difference and for about 10 years or thereabouts uh, a patients did traverse through A&E departments within about four years in, in about 90% of cases so there is a solution but as always it requires political leadership and resources.
0: Well actually just sorry I, I don't want to finish on a negative note but would that not also suggest you'd need an awful lot of management and union buy-in that people would actually be held to be responsible and would suffer the consequences of any failures because my fear would be that nobody would be held responsible and even if you did find somebody responsible, all sorts of excuses would be made to ensure that they weren't punished for their shortcomings.
1: Well, all I can say, Matt, is that in, in practice, the extra resources that are, the extra nurses and, and, and doctors made a huge difference and that they, uh, politically there was enough will there to actually genuinely sanction and penalise uh, chief executives and medical directors who didn't comply with, and this wasn't a matter of, uh, of you know, dealing with the unions, because basically Blair and Brown were giving people in the emergency departments exactly what they needed and exactly what they were, had been asking for for years before that, and of course there was the benefits were self-evident to, to everybody the patients the professionals uh, and of course the voters
0: Because you could say that's the UK and not Ireland but anyway thank you very much No no much. but it's a, it's a mo- we, ha- we, 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 we have a
1: UK model here and it's the same model uh, and I, I don't see why the, the the solution should be
0: any different Thank you very much Dr Chris Luke Okay what do you make of all that? 0874 100 102 gives you the last word by text or by WhatsApp The
1: Last Word with Matt Cooper Weekdays from 4.30 Today,